Hi, and welcome to Imperfect Utopias, based out of the UCL Global Governance Institute. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. We're really excited to have Forrest Landry as our guest today on the podcast. Forrest is a philosopher, a writer, a researcher, a large-scale software systems designer, and much else besides. He's also a businessman who places ethics and metaphysics at the core of his business model. Forrest has spent decades refining his thinking on metaphysics, its connection to realism, free will, and choice, among other fundamental concerns. And many of his writings are available on his uh, website, magicflights.com, and I can highly recommend them. Um, He's also turned his attention to questions of civilizational design and the importance of value ethics in the context of mounting complexity and global systemic risk. Connecting that big picture frame to the micro, Forrest and collaborators are currently working also on a project that they call ephemeral group processing, which uses technology to facilitate and scale face-to-face conversations in a way which has only recently become possible. So we've listened to some really intriguing conversations with Forrest on other podcasts, and we're excited to be able to pose some of our own questions today. So thanks so much for joining us, Forrest. Before we get into it, I'll just invite the pod crew to say hello. I think we've uh, got a full house today. Hi, so my name is Sam. Uh, I primarily run a lot of the back of the house stuff for the podcast, so audio and video editing. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Hi, I'm Jessica, and uh, I also do some of the video editing and uh, some of the research for the podcast, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Beautiful. Thank you. So perhaps we'll begin by kind of finding our bearings a little bit, so to speak. Uh, I don't know, Jess, do you want to jump in with the first question? Uh, yep, can do. Uh, So when it comes to addressing wicked problems, such as mitigating global systemic risks, civilizational collapse, ecosystem destruction, why do you place so much emphasis on asking the right questions? And why do we so often fail to do this? So in regards to language usage, right? So for instance, we do our sense making uh, generally by talking to one another. So in effect, we can look at the process by which we make sense of the world in terms of looking at uh, linguistic features and the nature of communicative process. Uh, So things like information theory and stuff like that can sometimes be relevant. When we look at the usage patterns in conventional speech, you know, the way people talk to one another, we notice that there's basically three kinds of actions that a person can take. They can ask somebody to do something for them. They can... Uh, say something that is essentially a belief or a thought that they have, or they can ask a question to seek more information. And so when we when we look at the patterns of how sense-making is done, we find that a lot of the best parts of it hinge on these questions. So in other words, when we look at the overall pattern of language, we notice that it's not actually that often that people ask questions. They mostly make statements. Uh, so it just even in answering this question that you've asked, I'm going to actually spend more time 
speaking statements than I will actually speaking questions. And this is just a natural thing that we do, right? It, it, you, can, you can ask a good question, maybe a few seconds, and it might take me all of 10 minutes to actually answer it. So, you know, in that sense, there's a, there's, there's a real focus that questions can give to key transitions in a conversational process, key transitions in our thinking and our sense-making. So in effect, uh, there's a there's a real emphasis when we're looking at, say, you know, methodology and science, epistemic methods, and so on and so forth, to actually bring it back down to what are the key questions that allowed us to even have an orientation as to what was important to think about. In fact, what is important to think about is itself a question. And so in effect, we can explore the terrain of things that matter when we're thinking about governance process. Um, as, a, as, as essentially being organized by the kinds of questions that we ask ourselves individually and as a group. Uh, another piece that comes into this, which I think is uh, maybe sometimes overlooked, is, is that it does actually change the nature of the social relationship. So, for example, when we're trying to figure something out, we're in a kind of reflective inquiry. And so, rather than speaking at one another, trying to convince you know another person to do something, we're standing side by side and we're looking into the world and we're trying to basically make sense of the world to understand what is a good basis of choice. What are the things that, uh, that we're needing to solve or the kinds of problems that, that are, that are needing to be addressed and, and, and what, what is, what is the solution even going to look like? Uh, so in, in, in that sense, there's less egoic conflict because people aren't, uh, again, trying to convince one another of something. They're not in a, a point to point relationship. They're in a side by side relationship. And this, uh, this enables a lot more possibility in conversation than would otherwise be apparent. Uh, another dimension to, uh, to this is that uh, in, in Western culture, in some cases, there's uh, a little bit of a stigma attached to asking questions. You know, there's a sense by which uh, people have a sense of vulnerability, right? They're, they're indicating something they don't know, and, and, and there's a, a risk that they may uh, fall down in someone else's esteem, um, or that they may be uh, making themselves vulnerable in terms of whether or not they can assess whether the information they're given back is is real or not. So in, in this sense, there's a uh, there's there's a real hesitation a lot of times for people to ask questions because they don't really want to get into entanglements where they're uh, either going to get vulnerable or that they are, uh, in a sense, going to be felt that they're putting another person on the spot. So you know, asking a why question can sometimes be felt as quite challenging, and so in effect, there's this there's this a caution, uh, particularly around the process of asking questions. Uh, another dimension, for example, is, is that the person that's asking the questions are uh, usually in control of the conversation or directing kind of where things go. Uh, so there's a kind of implied power in, in the, the question asking process. So for these and, and other reasons, um, the, the, the notion of question asking turns out to be really, really important in terms of uh, the flow of conversation, the insights that result, the kinds of directions that problem solving can take, uh, what sort of things are discovered? I mean, there's just this is really rich territory of, of, of value that is uh, available from from that kind of process. Thanks very much. I was uh, drawn to the term egoic conflict and uh, assessing truth and vulnerability and these barriers to reflective inquiry. How can we, as students studying global governance, but also just in our daily lives, encourage this type of communication and this type of reflective inquiry? One key distinction that I think is critically important to being able to do that is to explore the difference between judgment and discernment. 
Um, judgment is a kind of process. It's sort of a choice not to make a choice again. You know, once you've pigeonholed uh, another person or a thing, uh, you don't have to consider that anymore. It's dealt with and, and that's the end of it. Um, whereas if we look at discernment, discernment is a sort of exercise of continually to feel deeper into something, to look at the nuances, to consider, to, con- uh, to consider the details, to really explore the nuances and to try to find out what is really going on by essentially a kind of increased exposure, a kind of increased, uh, you know, in- inquiry that is that is engaged? And so, in effect, I, I, I describe this difference between uh, judgment and discernment. First of all, just as a as a kind of entry point, so that when we're uh, in a conversation with another person, that we can try to sense what is the basis of choice from which they are speaking. Where where are the values that that they are uh, essentially holding, and how is that shaping the conversation? So, you know, in effect, there's a there's a sense of being deeply curious about the situation, deeply curious about the other person, um, and to some extent, also not wanting to uh, to to be influenced in a in a way that might be, uh, you know, essentially unconscious. So, for example, you know, when 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 looking at a governance process, obviously, uh, it goes into politics, and politics is a lot of uh, conversations where people are trying to influence one another to shift their behavior, to shift their votes, or to uh, basically take on values that they might not already have or to, you know, basically uh, cause a, a kind of alignment to occur between groups of people and so on. So for all of these reasons, there can often be a lot of time where people are making statements with one another. They're doing kind of argumentative form, uh, using logic and rhetoric and all the rest of that sort of stuff to essentially shape uh, the action of conversation. It isn't necessarily something that uh, is is integrating of 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 choice in the same sort of way as inquiry would be. So in this sort of sense, part of what I'm suggesting is is that you know we we really want to pay attention to what's going on. What is the what is not just the message, but the context in which that message is being delivered. Um, it's sort of the medium is the message in some cases, and and to to a large extent, if we become more aware of these contextual issues, we can be more discerning about uh, how to respond appropriately in a given situation. So uh, in, in this sense, you know, when we're looking at the, the process of engagement, uh, you know, we want to be engaging in a way that essentially is in balance. And to do that, we can't just have one perspective and to hold that perspective more or less uh, without any variance. We actually want to have enough curiosity and a, and a capacity to do perspective taking so that we can essentially integrate that other person's point of view while still holding on to our own. And through the capacity to see from more points of view than as just one person at once, right? To see from both points of view that we can gain insight into a situation that might not otherwise be available. Now, obviously, if the other person's engaged in a conversation where they're trying to convince you of something and they're not seeking to do any kind of inquiry or perspective taking at all, then to some extent, you're not going to be able to get the same richness of process that you would with someone who was in sort of a reflective process with you. Um, so in a sense, just even knowing what kind of conversation you're in can be a huge help. The other piece too that, that, that comes into this is, is that once you've entered into a sort of uh, reflective inquiry process and you're, you're really trying to get into the dynamics of the communication, you're, you're really looking at a kind of uh, correction for a number of biases that would otherwise occur. So for example, you know, I mentioned a minute ago how you know, vulnerability might predispose us to not asking as many questions and to just do more parable and narrative or those kinds of things. Um, Whereas if we are uh, essentially trying to uh, genuinely deepen our understanding of the world and so on and so forth, and we want to basically 
be able to see from multiple perspectives and really get into the situation to understand what might actually be important, we're going to need to essentially reach a little farther than just, um, you know, thinking about communication as just a back and forth sort of thing, right? We're looking at um, question transformation. How do we take a, a question that's in one direction and, and sort of widen the envelope of what's being asked? Uh, how do we, you know, essentially take that curiosity into a space that's deeper that accounts for some of the action bias we might not otherwise, we might otherwise be feeling. Uh, so for example, uh, you know, for, for purely biological reasons, we have a predisposition to try to ask how questions so that we can do something to respond to a situation. Um, think of this as a kind of uh, premature optimization or a, a desire to act as a, as a kind of uh, dispositional state that in a lot of situations is actually uh, you know, if you if you don't have reflexes to deal with, uh, you know, catching a ball or or whatnot, um, you you it might hit you, and therefore you know you you need to be aware, basically, right? But in in governance work, for the most part, we're actually sitting and looking at more chronic problems than acute ones, and an action bias can actually get in our way. So, in effect, the the inquiry process and the nature of the communication process can, if it's conducted well can help us to move around some of these biases and actually get down to the nuance of how to deal with what otherwise would be very serious chronic issues. So we can move past just the how question and look at the why question, and maybe beyond that to look at the what question, what matters, what is the thing that is essentially the basis of our choice ultimately? How do we know ourselves as a community that we as a community can essentially make good choices in response to a situation in the world at large? So these are some of the considerations that come into that that I, I believe are relevant to what you asked. Yeah, I think, Forrest, that in a sense, as a group, we've kind of intuited that this is a problem and it's definitely informed the ethos of this project for us. But it's very exciting to hear you flesh it out and to think about how we might put that into practice, both in this kind of forum, but also, of course, in the seminar room as we discuss global governance and global politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to hand over to Sam. I think Sam's got a question for you. Yeah, Forrest, th- thanks for what you've said so far. I just wanted to ask a bit more about discernment on global issues and how we can discuss problems when the egoic kind of uh, nature of, of international policy often seeps in uh, in these kind of conversations. And how can discernment help with that? And also, as a side note, I, I wonder if you could touch on cosmopolitanism and some of its potential flaws and where that stands with the under, trying to understand multiple perspectives and multiple um, different groups that are coming to the table. Okay. Um, the main thing that I think is, uh, I, I feel frequently overlooked in, in, in a lot of these spaces is that we are actually biological creatures. And so part of the exercise of discernment is essentially to just literally understand our own natures. So it's, it's not just that I'm trying to be discerning about the other person. I have to, in a sense, be discerning about myself as, as the vehicle through which I'm being discerning about the other person. Um, and so in effect, you know, there's a lot of biological heritage that we carry that, that, that you know, it's been, it's been identified in a sense of psychological biases, but it also shows up. Uh, and this is something that was actually quite surprising to me as a kind of sociological bias. So when you're mentioning cosmopolitanism, to me, that's that's connected to to this notion that some of the biases show up at a at a cultural level as well as at a, at, at a personal or interpersonal level. 
Um, so let me give some some sort of uh, ex example or, or try to explain a little bit more about what I mean by that. Um, so, for example, if we're looking at, say, intergroup process, you know, we have uh, one political party talking to another political party or uh, one country talking to another country and things like that. Uh, a lot of times there's going to be a significant amount of that communication is that's going to be oriented around the group process itself. So, for example, um, we as biological creatures have a very strong desire to be part of a group. I mean, this is, uh, you know, connected to survival mechanisms. If you were, you know, you roll the clock back 10,000 years and you're part of some tribe and that tribe mostly is just on its own in the middle of the Amazon or something like that. Um, you know, to be cut off from the tribe is effectively to essentially have a life sentence. You're, you're not going to live very long uh, by yourself in the woods. There's a lot of skills that are needed in order to uh, endure in an environment like that. And although it's possible, it's, it's really quite challenging. And so, you know, part of the benefit of being with a group of other people and particularly a, a large enough group of other people is that there's enough variety of skills held by different people and there's enough just common support. Um, you know, you can't stand watch 24 hours. So, you know, there's a kind of rotation that's going on and so on. So in effect, the dynamic of we do our best capacities when in the company of other people is really, really felt at a, at a, at a very strong biological level. So things that um, will seem to us or will appear to us to uh, separate us from our tribe, our group, whatever we self-identify as being a part of whether it be at a national scale or at a political party scale or, or some subgroup, uh, religious organization or whatnot, um, there's going to want to be a, quite a bit of the choice-making process that, that each person in that group is going to be making to signal belongingness to that group. And, and, and that can actually be a pretty powerful influence on, on the behavior of the people that are in communication uh, you know, between one group and another. So, you know, I'm, I'm mentioning this because if you, if you get discerning about it, like if you, if you get to the point where you have uh, enough self-knowledge that you can begin to notice these tendencies in yourself, then you get to be able to recognize them in other people. Um, and I'm not saying that in the sense of judging them for being, oh, they're just basically responding to some sort of, uh, you know, deep impulse to belong, uh, but to actually have compassion for that, because quite frankly, it is a, it is a deep human need. And so in effect, there's a, there's a sense here by which, uh, by feeling through some of the places where we can sense that another person is essentially having to take the actions that they take and the speech acts that they are engaged in, um, you know, the, 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 being able to separate the compulsion part of it from the part of it where they are essentially free to navigate, you know, have a little bit of room to express their own opinions or to, or to describe some things that are actually deep situations within their group that they need to, to essentially inform the other party about. So, so in this sense, there's a, there's, a, there's a need for us if we're really going to interpret the signals correctly that we're receiving from uh, you know, a, another group of people in communication, that we want to be discerning about these differences so that we actually know how to interpret what it is that we're hearing. And if, if moreover, there is a, there's a sense that by doing that, that, that the compassion that you're able to bring into that particular process is felt by them genuinely then to some extent, you know, you're coming back into that working with rather than working against. Uh, it's not that unlikely for us to hypothesize that most people actually have a common set of values. I mean, you know, we're all going to, in a sense, be interested in the same sorts of things, clean food, clean water, clean air, um, you know, shelter, medicine, and communication, all being good stuff, like that they work well. So in effect, there's a, there's a sense here that, you know, we, 
we want to take care of our families. We want to take care of our communities. We want to, we want to have the kind of connections that matter and that are meaningful. And to some extent, you know, the ways in which we implement that and the ways in which we discover the ways in which that can be done uh, to, is, is largely going to be cooperative. I mean, there's really no way that we're going to be able to solve all these problems or any of them speci specifically just by ourselves. So in this sense, being more nuanced and discerning about the nature of the communicative process, the nature of the emotional dynamics, understanding the uh, the fundamental metaphysics of the subjective-objective relationship and what communication is as a fundamental protocol and process. Uh, you know, being discerning about these kinds of things allows us to essentially move into a space of clarity that enables us to find solutions that otherwise would be opaque. So particularly when we're dealing with uh, complex as distinguished from complicated things, it's the clarity that's going to make the difference. And that's clarity that results from discernment. So, you know, in all these ways, I mean, the, the questions you're asking are actually quite profound ones, and they connect to a lot of profound things. So mostly all I can do at this point is just give you some sketches as to how these ideas are connected together and the ways in which they become relevant in actual practice. Sam, do you have a follow-up? Yeah, no, I just wanted to, from what it, I've gathered, it seems that it starts from a place of introspection about one's own kind of limitations um, or not limitations, but just the, the, the matter of fact of the, the human body and the human mind. Um, and I quite like that aspect because there's often a joke that's thrown around that academics are the only people that labor under the illusion that they labor under no illusions. And uh, <laughs> I think it's, it's quite an interesting thing to think of it starting a, from an introspective um, position. And I was wondering if that was an intentional thing or can it happen um, kind of simultaneously with, with understanding the the introspective aspects and the kind of the one human animal aspect yeah it's all that and actually more i mean <laughs> this is this is delightful so the the the, the notion here is 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 connected in, in so many ways i mean when, when we're thinking about the sort of uh, academic perspective a lot of times they're coming from a kind of emphasis on the objectivity so they're looking for mathematical models and they're trying to factor their own person out of it because Obviously, that changes the epistemics of the process. However, when I'm describing this, I'm actually talking about it in an intensely personal way, right? So in a sense, the, the knowledge of self in terms of how my own biological process is essentially uh, influencing my behavior is, 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 is not in place of this mathematical understanding, but it is definitely a different thing. So in, in that sense, uh, that element of, of know thyself goes back to uh, Greek ways of thinking, you know, the, the notion that... Uh, if I know myself very well, then I can know you. And in that, there is actually this third pole. Like, for instance, when we're thinking about uh, governance dynamics, and you notice I'm saying governance and not government. Uh, that's a, a point we want to bookmark and come back to. But I think the thing that, 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 that I'd, I'd like to mention here that's particularly relevant is that it's not just essentially an inquiry into self. It's also an inquiry into world. And that through our connection to self and our connection to world, that we can have connection to other. So there's there's actually three. It's not it's not just two. I mean, when when people think about the scientific method, for example, um, you know, they have a hypothesis, they do an experiment, and they get some results, and then they, they test to see if that result is consistent with the hypothesis. But there's this whole other dimension that, that's usually overlooked in discussions of this, which is that 
the scientist isn't just doing this by themselves. They're going to actually say, okay, well, I'm going to go to this meeting over here. I'm going to talk to my fellow scientists and we're going to hash this over for a little while, see if we can come up with a better hypothesis. And so in effect, there's a peer review thing, or there's a, you know, some sort of discussion or dialogue that's going on where there's essentially perceiving from multiple perspectives and maybe things like replication of the experiment with other people in other situations. And that this is essentially part of the epistemic process. It isn't just, am I reading into this well enough to have good hypotheses myself? Do I have an imagination that has the scope and the capacity to imagine the kinds of situations which might be relevant to theorize about? Can I imagine the kinds of things that would be necessary to do in the world to validate whether my imagination corresponds to something about the real state of the world? And so in effect, the exercise of the freedom and the flexibility of the imagination is something that I do with my fellow peers, right? I'm not necessarily going to be imagining all possible scenes because I can't see from all possible perspectives. But if I'm talking to other people, I can now start to see from that person's perspective and that other person's perspective and that other person's perspective. And what ends up happening is, is that it increases the flexibility of my imagination. And through that, I become a better scientist. So in this particular respect, we're really talking about a kind of grounding that takes it out of the, uh, the notion of the sort of popularity contest of, of uh, people thinking that everything is negotiable. Right? If, 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 if you're in a scene where the, 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 the person that you're working with and so on and so forth has never actually had to make anything in the actual embodied world, they've never held a hammer, they don't know what a screwdriver is, they've never actually operated a saw or anything like that. They're just not going to understand that there are things about the nature of reality that are basically the case, whether or not I have any belief about it. Uh, there have been jokes made about, uh, you know, a legislation trying to decide that the number pi is going to be three rather than, you know, the transcendental number 3.14159 on, on and on and on, right? So the notion here is, is that if we become skillful at recognizing our own natures, our own uh, capacity for imagination, and we become skillful in our integration with the actual natural world. We know how the world really works. We develop a kind of mastery of ourselves and mastery of our physical surroundings. Then we can actually be genuinely present in relationships with other people. And this is, again, it's an exercise in discernment, but it's three kinds of discernment. It's inward discernment, natural discernment, and other discernment. So self, world, and other. And there's a kind of um, skillfulness that is needed in each, like the, the, the nature of how I'm discerning about my own emotional state, my own feeling state, versus the nature of how I'm discerning about, you know, is this table saw actually running smoothly? I happen to be a woodworker, so that's a metaphor I'm going to use. Um, versus, you know, is this other person that I'm talking to being honest? Are they actually telling me what matters to them, or are they basically trying to convince me of something? you know, to purchase the red car rather than the blue one. So in this particular sense, there's, there's a whole lot of dynamics that are connected to these kinds of things. And I, I, I wish it was easy, but the idea here is, is that the more I can create clarity through discernment inwardly and with the world, then I can also create discernment with the other. I hope that's not too abstract a question. I, I realize it's a somewhat abstract answer, but it's meant to be an embodied one. Yeah, no, I think that's very helpful. And I'm sure we're going to continue to, to probe uh, in that direction. Um, I mean, you did bookmark governance 
and I would be very curious, of course, the podcast is called Global Governance Futures. So why governance and not government? It's a subtle distinction, but a government usually refers to a class of people. So a kind of specialized function and a sort of representative model. Whereas governance basically refers to a kind of process. So rather than being a noun, it's a verb. And in this particular sense, we really want to recognize that if we're talking about governance, it needs to be integrated with the process of life. It needs to be integrated with people's actual lives. And if it isn't, then it just feels like some sort of top-down imposing force. And of course, people are going to reject that. Or if it's representative, then you can end up with these kinds of asymmetries where uh, the representatives are going to basically be acting on their own interests rather than on the interests of the people that they are ostensibly supposed to represent. Uh, this is uh, called the principal agent problem. And so in effect, if we're genuinely going to solve problems like this, we need to have a kind of integration that, you know, I, I guess is, is, is sort of described more in terms of things like democratic models. But it's not so much that I'm trying to advocate for that so much as I'm just simply trying to point a view that if we're essentially going to account for an awareness of what makes good choices, if we're going to do uh, a sort of feedback mechanism that integrates all of the information that is actually relevant, it's necessary to make good, wise choices, particularly in places where it's absolutely crucial that we do make good, wise choices, uh, you know, exponential tech or X risk or uh, certain kinds of chronic problems are very much in that category. They're large, sometimes slow moving, occasionally fast moving, and we need to be really, really capable of being able to make choices with these awesome powers that technology has given us. And so in effect, we've kind of got to upgrade our game. And if we have artificial separations in terms of the information flows necessary in order to be able to make those kinds of choices well, uh, we're going to make an already very difficult problem impossibly hard. So in, in that sense, there's a, there's a need for us to think about uh, the dynamics of how information flows through the system to essentially ensure that basically the right information makes it to the right places for those choices to even be possible in the first place. And by right places, I basically mean, you know, at the face, you know, there's a sort of metaphor of uh, the people that are working closest to the surface are going to know the most about the situation. They're going to have the most direct contact. And to some extent, we actually need to incorporate that as part of the process, not just as a, an information source and an actuator of some sort or another, but literally part of the dynamic itself. And we see this in nature. Uh, so, for example, you know, just in the nervous system of one's hands, some of the responsiveness happens in before it even makes it to my elbow or before it even makes it to my shoulder, right? There are reflexes that effectively mean that some of the choice making is happening uh, in the dynamics of the flows themselves. So this is why I use the word governance rather than government, because government would imply a kind of artificial separation. The brain is doing all the work. <laughs> that's not even close to true. I mean, there's so many other things that are going on. We have stuff that's in our digestive system that is deeply involved in how our brains work. We have all sorts of uh, connections between brain process and uh, immune system process, which are barely recognized that science and, and technology have only recently started to uncover some of these connections. I was just reading an article what, uh, three days ago, where they discovered this new connection between the immune system and the uh, nervous system. Quite frankly, I think in a lot of respects, the immune system is at least as complicated as the nervous system is. Um, although this is a speculation, I actually feel there's some real ground for that. Anyways, we're getting a lot off of the topic, but this gives you some ideas as to why subtle notions, again, being discerning about this, 
between, say, the notion of governance versus the notion of government. You tell people you want a world government, they're going to reject it. You tell them we have a governance that includes the whole dynamic of the world, they might actually feel more comfortable if it's truly and honestly that, of course. Yeah. Uh, you also drew this distinction earlier between complicated and complex. And we actually had Dave Snowden at UCL yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great conversation. Um, and something else which I just want to put in the mix here is, is uncertainty in the face of complexity. And when we talk about global governance, it does sometimes sound impossibly grand to aspire to designing at that scale. There are many problems that we haven't solved, you know, classical problems around political stability or whatever it may be that themselves serve as kind of a substrate for dealing with these novel new global systemic risks. So how, how, how do we begin to make sense of what is the sequence of choices that have to be made to, to ensure the, 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 the future of, of organized human life? Uh, how, how do we make good choices at a civilizational scale, which makes sense also looking up from the ground, shall we say? Well, I'm glad you asked that. There's a kind of third substrate. So you mentioned you know, this notion of uh, kind of this broad view, right? And then underneath that, what are the uh, enabling architectures that, that, that create the capacity for that broadest view? Um, and underneath that, there's this other substrate, which we've been basically talking about, which is what are the communicative practices that enable that intermediate substrate to itself be supported? So in effect, this is part of the reason why, although it may seem that uh, this is a fairly obscure way to go. I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about things like ephemeral group process or uh, the nature of communicative process. I'm basically following in the footsteps of Habermas, uh, who you know I consider to be one of the greatest uh, sociologists that have ever lived. Um, so in effect, you know, he, he's pointing out that you know we we do reason, we figure things out through communication, and that in effect, if we get really, really good at this communication process, we're gonna actually get better at this thing called community process. So if I'm trying to figure out how to solve problems at a political level, I kind of need to actually understand how to solve problems at an emotional level. And if I don't really have good things like, um, you know, just dealing with people's individual traumas in place, the communication process is just gonna be really messed up because, you know, people will get triggered and they won't be responding from as holistic perspective, they'll actually be caught in the trauma of their past. So uh, although I myself don't claim to be, uh, you know, a great trauma therapist or so on and so forth, I know some people who are, and, you know, I feel that it is actually quite important for us to get very, very skillful at knowing how to navigate just even our own emotional process in order to know how to navigate social process at a community level. And for that community itself, eventually, through some skillfulness at the community level, knowing how to be uh, part of a tribe and so on, that we could effectively start to think about things at a broader scale even than that, um, without getting caught in, again, all of these sort of pitfalls. For example, and this is maybe just uh, an odd way of saying this, but we as a species we, we know how to talk to one another, but we don't know how to communicate. We have language, but we don't have communication. Not yet. We're getting there. 
we're understanding it a little better. But there's a there's there's a lot more that needs to happen at the at that level of uh, again the nuance of that process in order to uh, basically parse out the kinds of things which are merely reaction versus those things which are truly choice. To really notice what are our values, like to to essentially come into the self awareness as a community as to just what is it that we care about. Now, ultimately, I can say things like we care about life. Right? Not just our own, but others too, right? The ecosystem we live in, to some extent, is necessary to support us as beings. So it's probably relevant for us to take a little bit of an altruistic perspective around that. And so, in effect, the notion of how to genuinely be able to be skillful in that particular way, therefore, becomes a kind of uh, mastery of process that doesn't necessarily imply anything about control. I'm not necessarily going to be able to predict uh, even so much as uh, one instant of time of the next thing any one of you is going to say to me, right? I can't, I can't predict the, the, even the first word that will be the next word you say. But that uncertainty doesn't mean that I feel uncomfortable having this conversation. I can feel, you know, that, that, that we are in good relationship enough to basically be able to address these kinds of things, that you've, you've looked at these kinds of issues at least sufficiently well to have invited me into this conversation in the first place. So, I'm looking more at those kinds of issues and I'm feeling very confident that by really working well with these kinds of things that to some extent the capacities needed to deal with uh, global catastrophic risk is, is, is actually going to be found there. Now, there's some technical reasons why I have that confidence, but that gets into some theory, which at this point might really be quite abstract. So I'm going to leave that for now. Okay. Thanks, Forrest. Uh, I know Zoe's got a question. Over to you. So I'm just trying to think how to phrase this in the most succinct way. You said that um, if people were to, if you were to tell people global government was necessary, they might reject it, but they'd be more welcoming to, towards global governance. Um, how would you communicate that to them? Because I do think that global governance does still seem quite abstract and remote from the experience of someone in the street who'd be more of a globally governed individual. Um, but so how would you, I guess, trans communicate that urgency for a need for perhaps global governance if you believe there is one? Um, and how do you do that, bearing in mind that there are concerns over centralized power and corruption and, and other things uh, along yeah, those lines? I, I think you just actually answered the question. You have to answer their concerns about power and corruption. I mean, you know. Quite frankly, almost all of us, the world over, are suffering from collective action abuse of so many varied kinds that uh, I think, you know, most of the people in the United States particularly are in some sort of reaction. You know, we're basically looking for uh, individualism in order to essentially be, uh, to some extent, independent from collection action problems, right? You know, if I, if I basically make it so that I, I have some sense of self-sufficiency, then, then to some extent, I've, I've, I've immunized myself against uh, the abuses of power that governments can take. Uh, now, obviously, this isn't completely true because none of us is ever going to be completely independent of the environment. We will always have effects on one another, no matter how far away we live from one another, and if, if that was even a possibility. So in this particular sense, I think the key is very much associated with genuinely and honestly addressing how do we put together systems of collaborative choice that aren't going to be uh, degrading into corruption issues, quite frankly. 
So I, I actually think most of it is, is, is learning how to create systems that are just literally unlikely and almost maybe impossible to become corrupted. If I'm looking for uh, a governance that I can actually trust, a commons that I can actually invest in, I'm going to want to know that the stewardship of that commons is good enough to be worth my investment. There's a, there's a kind of social contract in that. And so I'm basically looking to, to see whether or not the structure and the design of the social contract is of such a nature. I'm sorry, this phone just won't turn off. Give me just a sec if I can kill it. Right. Thank you. So um, the main idea here is, is that we have a, a deep recognition that things can go wrong quite easily. And that almost everything that has been tried in the past, if we look at uh, all the different models of governance that have been attempted or actually just governments that have been attempted, all the different cultures that have been tried, all the different communities and business models and experimental uh, paradigms for religions and so on and so forth, there are so many experiments that have been done in this particular space. And I think the thing that is new that basically means that we have a genuine hope of actually doing it differently and succeeding this time is that we know a heck of a lot more about ourselves than we ever have, right? We've, we've learned things about our biology. We've learned things about our minds. We've learned things about computer science and about all sorts of things in the world and so on and so forth. And we have a way of actually uh, sharing and integrating that particular knowledge such that we can actually do things that are beyond the skill of any one of us. And so in that particular sense, I actually feel that there's some hopefulness that we can address the problem of how to make an uncorruptible government one that genuinely represents the interests of the people. And that it may actually be the kind of thing that it's not so much of uh, whether we can find the will to do it so much as it's a question of whether or not we've recognized whether we've done so or not. Right? If, if, if somebody basically had a solution and said, here it is, would anyone else even notice that that was genuinely a solution? Would we have the skill to be able to receive an answer? Right? So now we have to look back at our capacities. Can we recognize what an answer looks like? Can we actually see that something is genuinely holistic? So in effect, this comes back to the questions. We have to upgrade our capacity to perceive a solution. We have to genuinely know what the problem is. So in this particular sense, there was a, uh, at least in collaboration that I've had with other people, and you mentioned uh, Daniel and Jordan in particular, there were a long series of conversations that, again, I don't know for their part, but I do know that at least for my part, that I, it, it eventually arrived at a space where I felt that I understood the problem, that I felt that I was able to use that understanding as a kind of litmus test to see whether or not my thinking was even in the right direction, right? Without, without having some sort of real deep knowledge as to how did things get so fucked up in the first place that we can't necessarily answer a question like, how do we prevent it from getting fucked up again? Right? So, so in this particular sense, you know, it really does come down to, are we asking the right questions? Do we even know what an answer looks like? And, and so in effect, we're, you know, we're way far away from at this particular point, presenting anything even remotely suggesting what a solution will look like. But at least we have at this particular point, firm ground to know how to proceed forward. And it's from that particular basis that at this point I can say, hey, this looks like it might be an outline that is at least vaguely the right shape. 
because it addresses this, 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 and this. And these are the key issues that have been identified as literally close to the core of the problem. Now, obviously, it is complete hubris for any of us to think that we have any capacity to design global civilization. I am not going to suggest that that's going to be something that happens as a result of any one of us, no matter how skilled we may be. But I can certainly say that by creating the right kinds of conversations, we can at least create the capacities for us to imagine what a solution like that might look like. And that involving the people who are on the street in that kind of conversation, that they can have the confidence that their questions have also been addressed. And I don't think anything short of this is going to work. So I want to pick up on a, a thread there, Forrest. Thank you for that. I mean, it seems that in some ways what we're having to do here is to really navigate that uh, difficult line between realism and idealism. And you said, you know, that we have all of this knowledge now, accumulated knowledge across different fields, insights from biology, insights from psychology. We know who we are. And if we, if we beginning to know who we be, are, we, begin, we yeah. the surface of who we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beginning. So if we take, for instance, a leaf out of EO Wilson's work, the famous sociobiologist, if we were to use that frame to think about what's happening right now, we might be quite concerned about, you know, uh, austerity, uh, economic stress, putting people into situations of bio insecurity, putting people into situations of, I guess, perhaps territorial tribal dynamics. These are not propitious conditions, one might say, to have a conversation uh, around how do we actually really organize that scales above, you know, the, certainly above the nation state, but perhaps even we're talking more fractured, more physically isolated group units in that context. Um, and I'm wondering, how do we begin to make sense of that situation and move forward? And I did want to link this in this, there's a a toolkit which you've you've expressed elsewhere which i really like uh, this idea that we need three things we need a compass we need a map and we need a location so if that's our location uh, what's the map and the compass for and how, how do we move move forward so the metaphor is um is extendable in quite a few different directions so Part of what the map is, is essentially the knowledge that we have. So when you refer to, you know, our knowledge of ourselves and our knowledge of uh, a situation, you know, there's these geopolitical issues. Um, there are places where there is actual devastation, where people are essentially in danger of starvation and so on. Um, that, that in effect, you know, the map is essentially our understanding of the situation. It's essentially a prospectus of, of the whole territory of actuality and if it's a good map, the prospectus of the territory of potentiality. Uh, Dave Snowden's also done some good work in the adjacent possible, which is part of that space. The compass is our ethics. So in effect, there's a, there's a sense here as to what the heck do we mean by making a good choice? So for instance, you know, it's, it's usually referred to as the North Star. What is the value system that we are effectively using to guide our day-to-day -day choices that we can look up every now and then and just tell whether we're on the right course? The current position basically means we have actual situational awareness to know where we are on the map. So, for example, um, you know, if I if I if I'm standing somewhere and I take the compass out and I take a look and I says, okay, north is that way. I'm going to go that way, but I don't happen to know my current position. If I happen to be standing on the edge of a cliff, I'm going to have a really sharp sudden fall. Right? It's not going to be a good thing for me to go forward from that particular position because. Even though I'm going in the right direction, I certainly don't want to step into this huge hole. 
Um, same if I happen to be looking at a cliff and it's in my face, you know, the compass can be pointing right at it in the right direction, but I need to go around. So the map tells me what is the trajectory that I can follow that will have the result in my going in the direction that is consistent with the values of, of, of whatever the community or the person is that's making those choices as to how to navigate. So in this particular sense, we do need all three, right? If I, if I try to operate uh, with just a map and the territory, but I have no compass, I have no way to align. I might know where I am on the map, but I don't know which direction the map is, is going in. And I have no particular desire to go in any particular direction. So I might as well just sit down and stay put. If I have um, basically the map and the compass, but I don't have my current position, then I have that cliff problem I just mentioned a minute ago. The one thing is, is that if I have the compass, I can at least, if I don't have the map or my current position, I can look around and construct some sense of my current position. And I can look around and construct at least some sense as to what the local map is. Now, it's not ideal, but at least it's something. So in, in this particular sense, I personally have spent more of my time thinking about the ethics aspect of the thing, because I feel that as being the tool that at least enables the possibility of those other tools. Whereas if you don't have a compass, then you don't really not only have any place to go, you don't know why you're even going there. So that's where that metaphor sort of lands as far as this is concerned. And I think that when we're looking at, um, you know, there are some global issues. There are some things which essentially are certainly transnational concerns. Um, you know, things having to do with the environment, uh, various kinds of plastic pollution, or, you know, whether there's warming or not, and so on. These are all things that are actually concerns that cannot be dealt with at any single national level. So, in effect, I think that because we all have mutually a stake in the interest of the well-being of the world, that to some extent, we are actually going to want to have a conversation around these things. And it's not so much a conversation in the sense of I'm trying to control something to happen. But in the conversation itself, there is at least some possibility that an alignment of action can be discovered and we can coordinate together. We can begin to see places where cooperation is genuinely in our mutual interest. And so we can look at things like multipolar traps and how do we solve that? So in effect, there's a, uh, there's, there's a series of deeper dynamics. It's like we're going from this notion of uh, finite games. There's this wonderful book by James P. Cars called Finite and Infinite Games. And right now, most of the time, people are thinking about national politics as if it's some sort of finite game. You know, who gets the most cheese? <laughs> Honestly, you can't take it with you. You're going to be on this earth for a short time. And, you know, really at some point or another, you want to recognize that that's not actually about winning, right? If you, if you, if you think about, uh, you know, winning in the finite sense, it's, it's, it's just not going to make sense with respect to the ground of the actual life. So we need to, first of all, think about it as being, how do we play so that we can continue to play? How do we essentially solve these problems, create enough capacity for us to be able to solve these problems? so that the conversation can genuinely continue. And, you know, to have enough humility in that process to basically be able to say, listen, I actually need your help. I need your perspective. I need your thinking. I need your imagination. I can't do this by myself. And I'm saying that as a, as a nation as much as I am as an individual. 
So in this particular sense, again, it's not going to be it's not going to be about control. It's not going to be about ego. It's not going to be about some sort of national scoped priority. It's going to be essentially about life. And so in this particular sense, you know, part of what our discernment is needed to do is to literally just understand what the hell do we mean by life? How do we support that? Right? If we're if we're working at, you know, rebalancing the relationship between man, machine, and nature, then there's fundamentally going to be a sense in which we actually need to comprehend what is our nature, what is the nature of this technology, and what is this nature of this world we've been born into. Because if we're going to be the stewards of that in some sense that essentially allows for the continuance of ourselves as a species, that we get conscious sustainable evolution actually right, we're going to need to be more conscious in order to create sustainability and the capacity to evolve. Because the rest of the world isn't going to stay still. It is going to evolve. It'll either do it with our help or it'll do it against us. But certainly nothing in the world stays the same. It's always change. So... Therefore, we need to get better about thinking about causation, and we need to get better in thinking about choice. Science has so far helped us with the causation piece. At this point, we need literally a metaphysics to understand how to think about the choice piece, one that is actually commensurate with the science. Uh, and there's a lot more that could be said about that, but that's a whole other day. Yeah, one of the insights that uh, has really struck me in the complexity science reading that I've done, which is not not huge amounts, but uh, Paul Sidia's work who tries to bring an ethical frame into complexity arguing that ultimately within complex systems there's no view from nowhere therefore we all must we all must be ethical agents within within the the system that's right seems like a profound statement i know yeah, uh, sam's it's pointing to something there's 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 a realness there yes exactly yeah. i know sam's got a question sam yeah, hopefully this transitions in quite nicely. But we've talked about the North Star and about the importance of being able to discern and also talk to a wide variety of people. And it seems like concepts like governance and governments and science and modernity all have a kind of baggage to them, like a kind of uh, national understanding. I, I don't you know if you're maybe. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know if you're um, if you come across the work of uh, Wang Hui on uh, modern Chinese thought, but he talks about uh, liberating the object from its positionality as an object. You know, for example, when we think of when a China thinks of empire, it's very different from when a kind of a jaded British student thinks about empire. You know, um, and how how can discernment help us with those kind of things? For example, modernity. Uh, talk obviously we've talked about the kind of the real meta level of uh, the, the human kind of animal but in in the kind of the mid-tier concepts of modernity or science or progress or or empire and how, how can we get across um, how can we use discernment sorry um, to talk to very radically different cultures um, that have very different etymological roots of those kind of concepts well, I would point out, first of all, that uh, some of those concepts aren't as radical or as far out there or as different as they would initially seem to be. I, I can't claim that I know a lot about Chinese philosophy. I wish that I knew more. Um, but the parts of it that I have encountered that I've really been able to feel into it, you know, things that are uh, connected to, you know, notions of Zen Buddhism, for example. There's this emphasis on the notion of flow and being with the flow. And there's this 
Uh, you, you mentioned the notion of de-objectification, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm displacing the notion of object as being the center of the universe. And I think that Western culture, for the most part, has actually taken this idea that objective is the center of the universe, that if it's not objective, it doesn't matter. Um, whereas if we, if we go into it a little deeper, if we're a little more discerning about the nature of what it means to be objective, the nature of what it means to be existing, existential, and the nature of what it is to be real, we'll notice through this discernment that these concepts aren't actually the same, that they are subtly different. They make different claims. They actually have different utilities. They, they show up in different places and in different ways. But that they are actually also, if our discernment is really good, deeply connected together, that the relationship between objectivity, existence, and uh, for lack of a better word, reality, are distinct, inseparable, and not interchangeable. They each have their own nature. They never occur by themselves purely. And I can't use one of those terms in place of the others. So in this particular sense, if we, if we really look at the inner essence of, say, a, uh, a, a sort of philosophical tradition as it occurs in China, and we look at the deepest essence of some of the things that occurs in the philosophical traditions of the West, we may actually discover that there really is some overlap. And that that overlap is actually meaningful enough that we can have a conversation across what otherwise seems to be insurmountable political divides. Now, reaching that perspective takes some real discipline. It takes a kind of progressive involvement with this practice of discernment, with this seeking of clarity, and with a willingness to be curious about the deepest elements of the mysticism of these traditions, a mysticism of the perspectives and of the philosophies and of the uh, practices that enable them. And that through that, we can find the ways in which to reach out and actually make the connections, and also to be able to kind of disentangle uh, you know, the biases that result from over-objectification as a process. Because Eastern mysticism, frankly, also has its own sort of hangups. There are things that it gets wrong too. So in the same sort of way that you know, the Enlightenment movement has created great benefit, there is a shadow side. There's this other part that basically is uh, actually to sort of watch out for. It's a kind of trap. You know, Science and technology have told us uh, what we can do, but they don't give us any clue about what we should do. And somewhere along the way, we actually have to find a way of how do we make choices about what the should is, which means we need to actually ground that in something that is not associated with the object. It's associated with the flow. So in effect, it's, it's um, almost paradoxical that to some extent, the answer to Western philosophy is found in Eastern philosophy, and the answer to Eastern philosophy is found in Western philosophy, because both of them are supported by something even deeper than that. Now, it's probably a pretty rare human being that's going to go through the sheer amount of time and effort necessary to do this. But on the other hand, at this particular point, given the severity of the issues that are involved, I think that's pretty needed, right? It's actually worth it for someone to do that, okay? It's actually worth it for lots of us to do that. Because quite frankly, anything less than that is, is not honoring the sheer nature of the problem itself. Right? If we're looking at existential risk, if we're, if we're dealing with the kinds of things that could literally end all life on earth, 
it seems to me that that problem is serious enough that it is worthy of our studied time and attention to a level of depth commensurate to the nature of the problem itself. And then anything less than that is just, well, a kind of ignorance, really. So in this particular sense, what I'm suggesting is, is that the questions are actually real questions, and it is genuinely worthwhile to become skillful in, the, in these practices so that the conversations that are genuinely needed that help us to get around the biases of the West and the biases of the East. Because you're right, the notion of how empire looks, hell, the day-to-day -day notion of how to make choices on a, on a personal basis, all look very different. And there are some things where I would basically say, man, I'm glad I don't live there because if I had to deal with that, I would be really, really unhappy, right? Things that, that to me impinge upon what I hold to be high and sacred values of, 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 of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But on the other hand, I also recognize that if I take that notion of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as an individual too far, which many people have, that I can create side effects like pollution or these global commons problems that are effectively worse than, than, than the thing that they may have been a reaction to. And so in effect, there's a, there's a sense here by which we really need to go back to the root, go back to the nature of how these things happened and to do so with enough humility and compassion to be able to genuinely respond. And on that point, Forrest, have you come across any challenges with reducing in, in seeking to understand the, the, the shared, a shared understanding? Um, because I'm, I'm thinking of Franco Moretti who tried to understand a kind of global literature. So what does love mean in, in a global sense? And he looked at, for example, um, in a very systematic way, the literature of a vast array of countries. And he found that one of the challenges of that process was that they lost a lot of the nuances of the individual understanding. And even on the just the, an individual level of talking to, you know, a friend, if I'm seeking to understand a kind of shared position, how, how can I fight against the, the urge to not oversimplify, but reduce some of the, the complexity um, in, in the kind of, in the hope that I might find some shared understanding? This is a great question. It's actually a very relevant one. Most people, when they're trying to do an exercise of broad scale, broad scale semantic analysis of the type that you're talking about, find themselves in the horns of a dilemma that they didn't realize that they had set up. There's a difference between simplicity and clarity. And so in effect, when they're trying to basically look at uh, how all these different cultures look at the concept of love, there's a sort of averaging effect that goes on because the notion of simplicity is the driving basis of the math. So for one thing, you can't just look at the concept of love by itself because that's too nuclear. It's too, it's, it's too finite. But in the constellation of other concepts around it, where you're doing this reification across the whole series of these concepts, it is possible to do something which isn't a simplification, but a clarification. So in other words, rather than trying to come up with the average of something, we're trying to come up with the essence. Can we find an essence that clearly supports all of these different manifestations? Can we distill, which is different than average, down to the principle of the concept? Can we express it in a series of, 
of, of, of deeper understandings that are profound enough to genuinely hold as a construct that principle, the statement of that principle. And again, this isn't going to be just a sort of formalization as it might show up in mathematics. It can look like that, but the form isn't at the thing. It's like the map and the territory. The map is not the territory. What you're looking for is the true principle. And you can formalize that in various ways. And if it's a really good, well-clarified principle, you'll find that the formalization part of it is easy. And people may say, wow, that's, that's really beautiful. It's really insightful. But what's really important is the degree to which it is profoundly clear. A great understanding isn't defined by how simple it is, how simple the equation is. E equals mc squared, very simple equation. What's important about it is its profound clarity. The more profoundly clear a metaphor is, a construct is, an idea is, a principle is, the more it will truly hold all of those different cultures and hold them well. That in conversations with any one of the people that are speaking in those particular things, if you are able to create a capacity in that conversation to convey the depth of the principle, you'll know you got it right because they'll say, yes, that's it. And it's in that electric moment that you know that you're on the right path. And this is a whole different exercise. And so we talked about discernment earlier. This distillation process is, is, is one of the vehicles of that sort of discernment. And it moves us to a different place than just some sort of vague average of what the concept of love means. It brings it down to something sharp, precise. But that's just a side effect of the principle's clarity. Thanks, Forrest. Um, perhaps just to shift focus a little bit, but along the same theme, really interesting. Can simplicity be intention with clarity? And to make that acute, I'm just thinking of, you know, in the climate space right now, there's growing emphasis on geoengineering. I read yesterday that apparently China is now engaging in sort of modification of weather systems and scientists are seriously talking about, uh, you know, refreezing the, 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 the polar ice caps. Um, these are engineering solutions, perhaps, to a very serious problem. Do they display clarity? No. <laughs> so if you were to explain to a student who is, let's say, wants to make a real, uh, wants to contribute to climate action and thinks the best way they can do that is to go into, well, geoengineering, to go into engineering, what is the blind spot there that they need to, they need to sit with and take account okay. of? This is a little delicate to represent, but I'll try my best. There's a, there's a, there's a kind of underlying triple between complexity, simplicity, and clarity. It feels like simplicity and complexity are, and, and by the way, I'm using the word complexity, but I could just as easily have meant complicated. But the, the idea is that simplicity and complexity feel to be in opposition. And I can't use simplicity as an answer to complexity, right? I, have, I lose too much information. I can't make a good choice if I don't have enough information, if I'm not thinking about all the factors. So taking a complex problem and forcing it into a simple perspective, which unfortunately most democracies inevitably do, 
any kind of mob rule process is going to result in taking complicated issues and trying to make them simple so that it's simple enough for people to vote on. It's usually meaning for sure that bad things are going to happen. Um, it's, well, I won't get into all the rest of these, that, but the idea here is, is that if we actually want to solve problems, we need to do it with clarity. Clarity can act as a solvent against complexity. If I have true clarity, I can see into complexity. I have insight. If I have insight, I can anticipate things like unexpected consequences because I have a way of operating that's more closely connected to the principle of the system itself. In that case, I can actually see the kinds of things that will genuinely make a difference without necessarily being likely to cause even worse problems, oh, I don't know, 10 or 15 or 100 years down the road. So in this particular case, the reason why I was a, a little like <laughs> just, just sort of uh, feeling like they, uh, the geoengineering things were uh, maybe not on the right track was because I haven't yet sensed, at least this is an opinion, okay? But I haven't yet sensed that they know whether or not they're reacting to a symptom or whether they uh, are addressing the underlying cause. And until we can really even make clear distinctions like that and to essentially have a sense as to what are we genuinely doing? Then the chances of unintended consequences are actually phenomenally high. So it's not that I'm against geoengineering by itself as a principle. I think that there are certainly things that we probably should be doing as, as far as geoengineering is concerned. But when I look at the solutions that are presented, the thing I'm filtering through is how good is the thinking process by which they've come up with a solution? Have they actually done enough due diligence around things like the precautionary principle? If they haven't even addressed the precautionary principle, or if there isn't some modeling that basically shows that they understand the nature of the natural systems well enough to have basically said, hey, there's actually real clear connection between things that have happened in Earth's past and what we're trying to do to give us confidence that at the very least, Earth has tried this before, right? We're not doing an experiment that has never been done and therefore have absolutely no idea what range of consequences we're going to have. So, for instance, when I see things like, just give you a couple of specific examples. Um, there was a suggestion about spraying uh, sulfates into the atmosphere in order to do cooling. I personally think that is just a terrible idea. I don't, I don't see any, any real ground for that. But on the other hand, when I see a, a, a suggestion along the lines of um, that certain um, serpentine type crystals and reactions can be uh, enabled in beaches and in quarries and stuff like that, that would absorb CO2, I say, actually, you know, the carbonate cycle and the rest of the stuff, that actually makes a lot of sense, right? It makes sense geopolitically. It makes sense environmentally. It makes sense in terms of the resources we have. And I'm not saying that this is a solution to the whole problem. Obviously, there's a whole lot that needs to be thought about. But I'm not adverse to the notion of using technology to heal nature. In fact, I think that ultimately, we're going to need to, right? We're going to have to. I'm more concerned as to whether or not the nature of the thinking that's gone into the solutions that are being proposed is coming out of some sort of misguided reaction to, to uh, symptoms or 
actually hasn't done enough integrative synthesis of the whole dynamics of the problem to even have a really deep understanding of it at the level of principle and is therefore actually just in reaction. The more that you enter into a kind of reaction system where you're basically healing the symptoms, you're actually increasing the brittleness of the whole system. You're going to end up with uh, feedback cycles that are in a sense going to be amplified in terms of their criticality. It moves us closer to existential risk. So for me, the difference between say cloud seeding versus uh, you know serpentine management is 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 enormous. I mean, it's just it's just like night and day in terms of the level of process that's gone into it. Now that's an opinion on my part, and I could very well be wrong. You know, as I talk to people and I learn more about these kinds of things. I find myself sometimes shifting my point of view based upon conversations that I have. And that's part of the curiosity piece that comes back to the discernment. Am I thinking about this clearly enough myself? Right. But I think that ultimately anytime that we're looking at that triangle of simplicity, clarity, um, and, and complexity that we're going to have to favor and just even notice the difference between simplicity and clarity. Because there is so many people in the world that think those two ideas are the same, and they aren't even close, right? If somebody offers you the simplest possible object, a sphere of black coal, like perfectly polished, simplest object, versus handing you a diamond with lots and lots of facets the same size, hell, man, you got to be pretty naive to not take the diamond, right? The complexity of it is the thing that makes it beautiful, right? You stick it out in the sun, you're going to end up with prisms all over the place. So in this sense, you know, when we're looking at, you know, what is enlightenment about? What is, what is the nature of this process actually oriented towards? Go for clarity. Mm. Thank you, Forrest. And I think we're rolling to a close. Thanks so much for this conversation. Uh, it's been very rich and we've really sort of traversed the meta to the grounded multiple times, multiple iterations and given us lots to think about. But I, I do want to give the last question to, to Sam. Sure, so yeah, thank you Forrest for an amazing uh, discussion. We've talked about the importance of questions. We've talked about the importance of concepts and asking the right questions and talking to a diverse range of people. Um, I also just wanted to ask on a final note, is it possible to, how, how can we include nature into these discussions? Obviously nature can't talk for itself but it seems like it's an important per, uh, entity to uh, kind of discuss with the, these issues. And I was wondering if uh, you'd had any thoughts on that it, relating to I have this. a lot of thoughts on that. Unfortunately, that is what I would call a category three question, which basically means this isn't a context that is sufficiently developed for me to actually answer it. So I'm going to have to punt. Not a problem. <laughs> it's worth a try, you know. <laughs> Um, I would love to hear what uh, Zoe has to say. I, I, I didn't quite get an introduction with you, and I'm curious to know what your uh, background and, and, and question would be if we have just a minute to address one. Uh, yeah, of I course, mean, yeah. So I'm Zoe. I am part of the podcast. I kind of do sort of help with the research and some of the um, admin random bits work. Um I'm quite overwhelmed by the discussion. I'm just sitting here trying to process it all. And I, I think it's really, what's really stood out for me in the conversation is this idea of communication and the fact that we have language, but we don't have communication. Um, and I guess if I had a question, it's difficult to boil it down to just one, but how do you see like a like global communication improving? Because we're all constantly talking to one another. Like just the fact that I'm here in 
where I am and you are where you are and we're well I hope communicating I don't know um I think we how would you communicate better like what would you advise everyone I guess you said like clarity and simplicity but even on like taking it in your day-to-day life in every conversation like how do we take clarity and communication forward in all of our interactions because I'm guessing well I, I hear your question yeah I have actually an answer which works both at the level of individual person to person and I believe would also work at the level of government to government and it's on one hand it's surprisingly simple and on another hand it's it, it has nuances that are uh, easy to overlook. To facilitate communication with another person, I must grant them three rights. The right to speak, the right to be understood, and the right to know that they have been understood. These rights can't be taken. They can only be given. So in, in order to enable communication, I have to give you these three rights. I have to voluntarily, without any strings attached, without any kind of presupposition of outcome, without any any uh, expectations that those rights will even be returned to me. I give those three rights. And in the reaching out and the vulnerability of that process, I hope and pray that they will themselves also be so skillful and so motivated of their own free choice without strings attached and so on to grant those three rights back to me. And insofar as we now have the three rights that I give and the three rights you give back, that those create the six capacities that form the handshake for protocol closure in communication. And this shows up whether I'm dealing with TCP IP stacks on the internet or deep emotional communication with a lover or one nation to another. They each have the right to speak, the right to be understood and the right to know that they have been understood. And it is only when each one can truly know that they have been received by the other, that the the, the deep essence of their meaning has been received by the other, and the questions that they ask, and the envelopes of understanding that are created as constellated by those questions, that we get the handshake that moves it from speaking at to speaking with. And from that evolves the capacity for the conversation to continue. I believe that would be a wonderful place to adjourn. Thank you for that wonderful question. It is entirely appropriate. That was good medicine. Thank you, Zarian. Thanks so much, Forrest. We've really enjoyed this. Thanks for tuning into Imperfect Utopias. To get access to all of our content and to stay up to date with future Zoom calls, workshops and events and more, check us out at ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. If you like this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. Until next time.